Father, we come to you tonight, and we're grateful for the chance to be together, grateful for the chance to study. I'm thankful for these men and their willingness to take a night out uh, just to be here and to think about the Bible, uh, to think about the book of Revelation. Uh, Lord, there's difficult things in the two chapters that we're going to look at tonight, so we ask that you would open our eyes to the truth and help us to understand not just what this book means, but uh, what it's calling us to and uh, what kind of people you would have us to be. So, Lord, be at work in us tonight. Through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, there's a couple of challenges I just want to acknowledge up front with the passage that we're looking at tonight. We're looking at Revelation 8 and 9. Challenge number one is partly built into the fact that we only meet once a month, but we didn't meet in January, so it's been two months since we've thought about the book of Revelation. You've been on Christmas break and New Year's and watched football and all that kind of stuff, so we're jumping back in after a long break. A second challenge is the fact that Revelation 8 and 9 are connected with 6 and 7. And we've talked about 6 and 7 two months ago, but you've got to understand 6 and 7 if you want to make sense of 8 and 9. The next challenge is... 8 and 9 are connected to 10 and 11, which we're not going to talk about till next month. So all of this is so tightly knit together that it's really tricky to chop it up and to split it up and to say we're only going to look at this unit. But it's also too much to look at all of it at one time. So acknowledging some of the difficulties. The last challenge, and this is not insignificant in terms of a challenge for Revelation 8 and 9, is that there is some really weird stuff in this chapter, in these two chapters. This is the kind of stuff people geek out on when it comes to the book of Revelation. And this is the kind of stuff where you can find interpretations literally all over the map, all kinds of ideas about what's going on in Revelation 8 and 9. So I don't have any illusion that we may all agree on all of the details, but if you stick with me, even if you disagree, stick with me, We'll come full circle to the end and I think make some application that everybody can agree on. So let me remind you how we've broken down the book of Revelation. We've broken it down into seven sevens, okay? The book is based on its literary structure involves seven sevens. And so I'm going to just put the outline on the screen and try to make sense of this. Um, the foundational vision that governs everything in the book is chapter 4 and 5. It's the vision of the one who sits on the throne and the Lamb. Okay? It's the foundational centering vision for everything that takes place in the book. Outside of that, there's a prologue and an epilogue, and then you got these seven sevens. So we've already talked about the seven letters. Uh, back in December, we talked about the seven seals. Tonight, we're going to do the seven trumpets. And then we've got seven visions of conflict, seven plagues and bowls, seven visions of victory, and seven visions of the end. This little section, 8 1 to 11 19, seven trumpets, that section can be broken neatly into two subsections. And I didn't have space for it up here, but you can see it on your notes. Trumpet 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6 are in chapter 8 and 9. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight the first six trumpets, and then there's an interlude, and then you pick up the seventh trumpet in chapter 10 and 11, which is what we're going to talk about in a month. 
So I just want you to see the, the big structure here. And on the front end, I want to point out some literary connections. This is the kind of stuff when I think about talking about Revelation with a group of guys like you, part of my brain says, they don't care about this stuff. They don't need to know this stuff. This is not practical stuff. You really should care about it. And it really is practical. Because when you can see how the book is put together, it will help you make sense of it and interpret it. And if you don't have an overarching sense for how the book is put together and where the seams are in the units, then it becomes a free-for-all on interpret, uh, interpretation. And so it really is helpful to understand some of this stuff. So I want you to think with me just for a minute about the connection between the seals, seven seals, and the seven trumpets, and then the seven bowls. I just want you to think about the, the similarities in these three sections of Revelation. Number one, there's a literary device that connects the seals and the trumpets, and that is that the seventh seal is with the trumpets. So we're specifically thinking about how do we compare seals and trumpets? What are the similarities between those two? Seals we talked about last time, trumpets tonight. The literary device connects them. And the literary device is the seventh seal is set within the trumpets. So this is like taking two pieces of cloth side by side and running one stitch between them to connect them. John is sewing these passages together by taking one of the seals and delaying it and putting it over here with the trumpets to help you understand, I got to make sense of these together. I can't make sense of them in isolation, but they actually go together. There's also a repeated pattern, and you got to see this pattern. It connects the seals and the trumpets. The pattern is, if you're a math major, 4 plus 2 plus an interlude plus 1 equals 7. That's the pattern for how the seals are laid out. There's four of them that go together, four seals, the first four. And then there's two that go together. And then there's a gap, a break, an interlude, and then you get one more seal. That's the exact same pattern that you see with the trumpets. You get four of them in chapter 8. And then you get two of them, and those two go together. And then there's an interlude, chapter 10 and 11, and then you come back and you get the seventh. So John's using this pattern to show you these things are the same. He's describing the same thing. He's using the same pattern. Lastly, there is a different group of people impacted by the trumpets. So when you look at the seals, the seals are experienced largely by everyone on earth, all human beings on earth. The emphasis on the trumpets, we're going to see tonight, uh, is that it is focused on those who dwell on the earth. And in the book of Revelation, those who dwell on the earth does not mean everyone on planet earth. Those who dwell on the earth means lost people, non-Christian people. So the emphasis on seals, every person, all humanity experiences these things more or less equally. But when it comes to the trumpets, especially the last two trumpets or the, the fifth and sixth, the emphasis is 100% on those who dwell on the earth. So there's a different audience intended here. Uh, our wives, our ladies, are studying the Nancy Guthrie book. And when Nancy Guthrie talks about the trumpets, she says the trumpets are like 
spiritual smoke detectors. All right. Have you ever had your smoke detector go off in the middle of the night? Is that easy to sleep through? Right? It wakes you up. It scares you to death. You know something's going on. You either got to put out the fire, you got to yank the thing out of the ceiling and just smash it to pieces. And that's what the trumpets are. They're like spiritual smoke detectors blaring off intended to get the intention, the attention of those who dwell on the earth, those who do not have their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And those people have two options. They can repent, listen, or they can yank the thing off the wall and smash it on the ground and say, I don't want to listen to that. And we'll see how it ends up with the trumpets, okay? So now let's compare the trumpets and the bowls. So we're jumping ahead with the bowls. Trumpets are tonight. Bowls are coming in a few weeks. Uh, What are the similarities here between the trumpets and the bowls? The first four trumpets and the first four bowls are directed towards the earth, the sea, the fresh water, and the sun. So you see the same pattern in the trumpets and the bowls. And I'm just showing you all these literary parallels, connections, the same pattern, all that stuff. John is telling you, I'm not describing three different things. I'm describing the same thing three different ways. So he's, he's using these literary technique, techniques to, to clue you in on this. Uh, with the trumpets and the bowls, there is an escalation of severity when you move from trumpets to the bowls. So when we read about the trumpets tonight, we're going to read about one-third of things being destroyed. When you get to the bowls, the destruction is total. So there's an escalation when you move from the trumpets to the bowls. And when we get to the bowls, we'll make sense of that escalation. We're not going to try to wrestle with that tonight, but I'm just acknowledging that. The fifth and sixth trumpets and the fifth and sixth bowls describe demonic forces of evil and spiritual warfare. This is a parallel. And with that point, I've pretty much given away the whole farm of this lesson. That's where we're going with these big trumpets, number five and number six, is demonic forces of evil in the world. And you see the same thing in the bowls. Now, one point tying together the seals and the trumpets and the bowls, all three of them. The seals, the trumpets, and the bowls all end with the same phenomena. And so I just want you to see this in the text. Look at Revelation 8, 5. This is the end of the seals. The angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it to the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Okay? Those are the phenomena that took place. Now look at 11, 19. This is where we pick up the seventh trumpet, the end of the trumpets. 11.19 says, God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen with his, within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and an earthquake, and heavy hail. So very similar in how they end. Look at 16.18, just to jump to the end of the bowls. The heading in above verse 17 says the seventh bowl. So the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. A loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying it is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. You have a choice 
when you come to these seals, trumpets, and bowls? One choice is you can say, John is laying out a chronology. And he's telling me that these will happen first, and then these will happen, and then these will happen. And you can try to map that out on history, past history, current history, future history, however you think that's all going to play out. Or you can understand that the book is built on seven sevens. And these seven sevens give you seven visions of the same thing from a different perspective. And we've talked about that like a football game. You've got all these cameras showing you the same game, but they give you different angles of the action. They show you things from a different perspective. And I think that's what John is doing, is he's showing us things from a different perspective. So a few quotes just to show you where I'm at, to help you understand where I'm coming from as we approach this passage. Schreiner, the trumpets don't describe a new series of events, but they revisit from a different perspective the same period of time found in the first six seals. Revelation, like many texts in the Old Testament, is recursive, revisiting the same period of time from a complementary perspective. Recursive is the key doctrinal word you're hanging on. Schreiner is telling you the book is not sequential, moving from A to B, but it's recursive, moving in circles, describing the same thing over and over and over again in different ways. Uh, Derek Thomas, Revelation gives us several glimpses of the same picture from different perspectives. There's a cyclical nature to the book that offers us recurring glimpses of the work of Christ and the unfolding of his providential purposes, shows us how the reigning Lord Jesus Christ brings the purpose of God to fulfillment and salvation and judgment from several different angles. The story is told several times, and on each occasion, the camera seems to focus on something different. So we've talked about this. This is all a reminder. The Old Testament prophets do the same thing. If you've ever read Isaiah or Ezekiel uh, or Jeremiah, you get like 10 chapters in, and you're like, I think I got it. I think I understand what you're saying. And then they say it for 50 more chapters. The same thing over and over and over again. That's what John's doing. Nancy Guthrie. The events depicted in the seals, trumpets, and bowls take place over the same period, uh, same time period, the time between the first and the second coming of Jesus. Revelation is showing us the same scene from different angles, and each angle helps us to see and understand a different aspect of what's taking place during the same period of time. So that is all by way of introduction. Take your Bible, read with me Revelation 8, 1 to 5. Revelation 8.1, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne, and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. All of that's a tie back to Revelation chapter 6, where we see these souls under the altar crying out in prayer. It's a literary connection to chapter 6. Uh, verse 5, the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar and threw it, to, uh, threw it on the earth. 
and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. All right? I want to ask several questions about that section and try to make sense of what's happening. Question number one, who are the seven angels who received the seven trumpets? And I'm just going to give you some possibilities of who these angels are. Number one, they may emphasize the word may. They may be connected with the seven archangels mentioned in the Apocrypha and the Pseudepigrapha. So please take your copy of the Pseudepigrapha out and let's talk about uh, Tobit and Enoch. Tobit is part of the Apocrypha, okay? That is a collection of books written after the Old Testament, before the New Testament, that the Hebrew people never recognized as Scripture. Never, never, never recognized as Scripture. Jesus did not recognize them as Scripture. But that over time, the Roman Catholic Church has added to the Scriptures. So one of my great thrills as a young child was to visit some of my family who were Catholic and to sit there and to take their pew Bible and to open and to say, they got stuff we don't have. And one of the things they got that we don't have is Tobit. And they can keep it, we don't want it. But Tobit talks about seven holy angels. There's a reference in Tobit to seven holy angels. In uh, First Enoch, there is a reference to seven archangels in First Enoch. I don't know if any of you have ever read First Enoch. It reads like a Jimi Hendrix Pink Floyd concert on acid. It is wild. There is crazy stuff going on. It's nothing like anything in the scriptures. It is crazy stuff. But there's all kinds of art in Orthodox traditions and Catholic traditions based on this idea that, that there are seven archangels. And if you're curious, I can tell you the names and the roles of the seven archangels. Uriel is over the world and Tartarus. Raphael is over the spirits of men. Raguel is over the luminaries. Michael is over mankind and chaos. You've heard of Michael, right? Okay. Uh, Serakel is over the sinful spirits. Gabriel, you've heard of Gabriel. Gabriel is over paradise and snakes and the cherubim. And Remiel is over those who rise. So those are the seven. And if you like figurines, you can get online and you can buy some figurines and you can have your seven archangels or your art or your stained glass or whatever you want. So I'm just telling you, this mentions seven angels who stand before God. Now, hear me real careful. I'm not saying Tobit's right. I'm not saying you ought to read First Enoch, that those are authority at all. But I'm also telling you that just because something is in those books doesn't mean it's necessarily wrong. You understand the, the distinction? This is kind of like squares and rectangles, you know, back and forth. One is the other, but the other is not necessarily the first. So just because it's in there doesn't mean we're going to believe it. But just because it's in there doesn't mean we say it has to be wrong. So I'm just laying it out to you. And I'm telling you, there's a lot of commentators that say these seven angels is probably the seven archangels. So you do with that what you want to do with it. Next option. These could be the seven angels of the seven churches. We've already met seven angels in the book of Revelation. We met them in chapter 2 and 3. Each church had an angel. And we kind of talked about what they were or could be or who they were or what they might be. So maybe there's a connection there. Thirdly, these are likely the same angels who pour out the bowls when you get to Revelation 15 and 17 in the end of the book. So this group of seven angels shows up again. 
So really in all that, what I'm telling you is I have no idea who the angels are. No idea. And I don't think you should spend a whole lot of time worrying about it. And I don't think you should build a whole lot of doctrine upon it. Because there's seven angels and they're involved in the blowing of these trumpets. Okay? Question number two. What is the biblical significance of the angels receiving trumpets? Why trumpets? Why not lyres? Why not electric guitars? Why not mandolins or any other wind instrument? Why trumpets? Here's a couple thoughts. Trumpets were used to mark special times in the Hebrew calendar, uh, the Jewish calendar. So you look at Leviticus and you think about the Feast of Trumpets and the Year of Jubilee. They blew trumpets for these things. So they were marking special times. So this could be we're marking something special in the book of Revelation. A time is being marked. Uh, Secondly, trumpets were used when the Lord fought alongside Israel. I gave you some references to Numbers and Joshua. Think about the people of Israel marching around Jericho with the trumpets. And the trumpets being blown as sort of the war cry when it was time to take over the city. That could be part of the imagery here because God's judgment is about to be poured out uh, on mankind. Thirdly, last possible connection is that the return of Jesus and the final judgment are often described with the sounding of trumpets. And I gave you some Old Testament and New Testament references for that. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4.16 is one of the most familiar to us where the Lord Jesus is going to come back for his people and you will hear the cry of God and the archangel will blow the trumpet and the dead in Christ will rise first. All the things Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians 4 with the return of Jesus. So this idea of trumpets, we're marking a time, we're pouring out judgment, and we're thinking about the return of Jesus. All those ideas are connected. Question three, why does it get quiet in heaven? Why the silence in heaven for about half an hour? Uh, Three suggestions for you. From a literary perspective, uh, the silence ends the seals and it prepares the reader for the trumpets. So we talked about how John has woven these things together and he's taken this seventh seal and he's not put it with the first six, but he's waited to give it to us now here in chapter 8. So this silence is just sort of a a connecting material to show us that these things are related. Secondly, from a theological perspective, the silence prepares the reader for judgment. So Joshua, Jericho, they did blow the trumpets, but you also remember that part of the instruction to the people was when you march around the city, don't make any sound. Be quiet. So there's all sorts of Old Testament parallels to the book of Revelation, and I think that's one of them. I think Habakkuk 2.20 is a kind of verse that's in view when you think about silence and the judgment of God. If you've ever read Habakkuk, Habakkuk is wrestling with God and why God does things the way he does them and why he doesn't do certain things. And God kind of puts Habakkuk in his place, and Habakkuk ends up saying, I'm just going to shut my mouth and be quiet, and you're going to pour out judgment when it's time. So there's a parallel there. Uh, Number three, from a doxological perspective, doxology is worship or praise or glory. So we're talking about worship here. From a doxological perspective, the silence allows John to know that the prayers of the saints have been heard. Now, I want to be clear what I'm saying here. This silence is not like 
me driving in the car with my wife and my kids, and my kids are going crazy in the back seat, and I say to them, would you be quiet and stop so I can hear the instructions about where we're supposed to drive to dinner? I can't hear. I need you to be quiet. It's not like God is up in heaven saying, hey, simmer down so I can hear the prayers of these people. That's not the point. The point is John is having a vision. And in this vision, there are these prayers being offered from the altar. And this silence allows John to understand that somebody is hearing those prayers. Those prayers of those suffering people are not just floating up into nowhere, but they're being gathered by this angel in the vision, and then they're being presented with the incense, incense and prayer, always connected in Revelation. And somebody is actually hearing those prayers And this allows John uh, to make sense of that. So I gave you a few quotes here uh, about the silence. George Ladd, the best suggestion is that the silence represents an attitude of trembling suspense on the part of the heavenly host in view of the judgments of God which are about to fall on the world. And Shriner says the judgments poured out in the trumpets represent answers to the prayers of the saints. So we're thinking about judgment and we're thinking about prayer. Now look at Revelation 8, verse 6. Let's take in the first uh, four trumpets here. 6 to 12. The seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. These were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and of the springs of water. The name of the star was Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and... A third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, likewise a third of the night. We'll stop right there at verse 12. Two quotes, and then I want to show you a connection to the book of Exodus. Uh, John's describing with apocalyptic language the devastation marking life on earth during this present evil age. The desolations impacting the earth represent God's judgments. That's Shriner. Robert Mounts uh, has a very different view of the book of Revelation than Shriner, but he says this, the trumpet plagues are directed against a world adamant in its hostility toward God as the intensity of the judgments increases, so does the vehemence with which people refuse to repent. So I want you to see a connection here between the trumpets and the book of Exodus. Because I think one of the primary Old Testament references it's not ever quoted directly but i think it's pulled from in these visions and the way john describes things and what he sees is the exodus from egypt and the plagues that god wrought on egypt and so i've given you this in one format in your notes and i put some of it up here uh, on the screen i don't want to walk through all the details i just want to say to you that you've seen all this before all of these kinds of things god's judgment affects the water it affects the light It affects the land. It affects the grass and the plants. All of these kinds of judgments have been poured out before. They're all 
already uh, things that have already played out in the book of Exodus. Uh, even this stuff about the storm and the earthquake. You remember they go to Sinai and there's rumblings and lightning and peals of thunder and all those words that John keeps using throughout uh, the seals and the trumpets and the bowls. So we're going to revisit these connections to the book of Exodus. Here's the first four trumpets. I didn't give you anything to fill in here. It's just pretty straightforward. Uh, the first is a storm. It triggers massive fires on a third of the earth. The second seems to be some kind of volcano. I, I don't know what else John means by a mountain that's blown into the sea and it's on fire, but it sounds like some kind of volcanic explosion that destroys a third of the oceans. The third is a meteor comet uh, that destroys a third of the fresh water. I know that it says star. I don't take that literally. Uh, I don't know how you could take it literally that a star much bigger than earth would fall to the earth and only a third of things would be destroyed. So comet, meteor, something astrological, uh, it affects the fresh water. Plague number four is a dimming of one third of the stars, moon, and sun. So just a couple of observations about all that. Uh, the destruction here is significant. A third is not nothing. But it's also not total. And there is going to be an escalation when we get to the bowls. There's not going to be a third when we get to the bowls. So when you think about the book of Revelation as recursive, you understand that what John is describing here may be judgments poured out on the earth that are not total in nature, but that are significant. And when you get later to the bowls, we're in the same window of time, but the emphasis may be later in history when you get to the bowls. But we're still dealing with this same period between the ascension and the resurrection and the destruction is total when you get to the bowls. Uh, when you think about this volcano and an idea of something blowing into the ocean, um, John would have lived through Mount Vesuvius blowing Pompeii to smithereens. Everyone in the Roman Empire would have known there was a town here. And then the mountain literally blew to high heaven. And then there was no town. And in this vision, I think John sees something like that. And it wouldn't have been unfamiliar to his readers. Uh, this idea of a mountain being blown. Um, mountains in the book of Daniel. Daniel is obviously connected to Revelation. Mountains in the book of Daniel often represent kingdoms. Other places in the Bible, kingdoms are described as mountains. Uh, this stuff about wormwood, the star, the name of this star is wormwood that falls down. The only Old Testament parallel there is Jeremiah. Jeremiah says to the people that you're idolaters and God's angry at you, and he's going to make your water bitter like wormwood. So that's probably some of the Old Testament connection there. Uh, and this stuff about the, the star falling, uh, many, many times... Uh, world powers in the Old Testament and in Revelation are described as stars, as powers in the heavens that are being shaken. When you read about all these astrological phenomenon, it doesn't mean go outside and see what phase the moon's in and what color it is. It means the kingdoms of this world are being shaken. So those are the four, and they're all directed towards the earth, which brings me to this question. This is an important question. Why are these first four trumpets poured out on the created order, the land and the sea and the fresh water and the sky. 
Why are they poured out on creation? Reason number one, Adam was given dominion over the created order. He was given dominion. And Genesis 3 and Romans 8 are clear that Adam's sin brought a curse on the created order. Everything that was under Adam's dominion was impacted by Adam's sin. And so this curse, all of a sudden we read about thorns and thistles and you're alive but you're going back to dust and all of this negative language about the creative, created order being judged is rooted back in this idea of Adam and his sin and the dominion he had over the created order. Reason number two, we are dependent and cre uh, connected to the created order so the destruction of the created order has a negative impact on human flourishing. So I'm just making the point here that when God pours out judgment on the created order, that is judgment on us. And if you don't believe me, just think about Mount Vesuvius and Pompeii. Like the mountain blew and that impacted people, not just the mountain. Think about the people who died in the uh, was about 20 years ago, the tsunami in Indonesia that just killed tens of thousands of people. That's a judgment on the created order, in a sense, a natural disaster. It had a terrible impact on people. Tornadoes, hurricanes, little bitty teeny tiny microbes that kill people and cause illness. All of these judgments on the created order have an impact uh, on us as human beings. And I think what John is describing is this period of time between the ascension and the return where these judgments are being poured out. So Derek Thomas says this, the main focus is on the judgment that creation itself experiences. Something has gone radically wrong with the created order. John is telling us that the natural order of things, uh, in the natural order of things, there's a curse at work. And it twists and it misshapes. Since the fall, creation has within it principles of hostility. The garden became for Adam a graveyard. And that's what John's describing in all these judgments that are being poured out. I love this quote from Osborne because it connects us back to Egypt. The purpose of the first four trumpet judgments is primarily to disprove the earthly gods and to show that Yahweh alone is on the throne. By recapitulating the Egyptian plagues, God wants to make his omnipotence known to the world and show the futility of turning against him. So if you've read this Exodus story, you know that one of the things God says is, I'm going to bring these judgments on Egypt. One, to punish Pharaoh and the Egyptians. But two, because I want to get glory over the gods of Egypt. And I want to expose them as fake, fraud, phonies. And I'm going to control the frogs, not the gods of Egypt. I'm going to control the Nile. I'm going to control the sun. I'm going to control all these things in the created order to show that it's not them who are controlling it all. And I think that's the same principle at work here in these first four trumpets. Now, the last verse of chapter 8, verse 13, Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth, at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. You remember when we saw the centering vision in chapter 4? And there's the one seated on the throne. And the angels are crying out, holy, holy, holy. He's the most holy. He's the holiest. 
that threefold repetition is used here, not in a positive sense, but in a negative sense. And this word woe literally means you're damned. Woe, woe, woe. Judgment is about to be poured out and it is going to be absolutely horrific. So we've seen four trumpets. There's seven total, so there's three to go. And there's three woes. So these three woes are connected to the seven trumpets that we're about to make sense of. And they are horrifying. They're horrifying. So that is Revelation 8. Now let's look at Revelation 9. 